Lord, we ask you to bless this evening, and God, you didn't show us what you would want us to see from these uh, scriptures, and we thank you for your leading and your love for us, and, and thank you in Jesus' name, amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 17. Uh, how about Chronicles? We just want to confuse, see if you're all paying attention. You were stuck on the Corinthians part. Just testing you all, see if you're all paying attention. All right, Second Chronicles chapter 17. We have um, Asa has just passed away. He was a relatively good king until his later, later years when he got mad at the prophet for prophesying something he didn't like. And God brought judgment on him. And now he's passed away in the last chapter, and we're going to start with jo Jehoshaphat. Verse 1, And Jehoshaphat his son reigned in his stead and strengthened himself against Israel. And he placed forces in all the fenced cities of Judah and set garrisons in the land of Judah and in the lands of Ephraim, which Asa his father had taken. And the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in, in the first ways of his father David and sought not the Baalim, but sought the Lord God of his fathers and walked in his covenants and not after the doings of Israel. Therefore the Lord established the kingdom in his hands and all Judah brought to Jehoshaphat presents and he had riches and honor in abundance, and his heart was lifted up in the ways of the Lord. Moreover, he took away the high places and the groves out of Judah. So here we have Jehoshaphat coming to power, and it says in, in this first part, he strengthened himself against Israel. And again, Israel is the primary enemy of the southern kingdom all the time. We have the northern kingdom Israel, the southern kingdom Judah, and Israel and Judah are at odds almost their entire existence. So the first thing he does when he comes to power is he protects himself against his number one enemy and sets up his, his uh, defenses. Says he placed forces in the fenced or fortified cities of Judah and set garrisons in the land of Judah and in the cities of Ephraim. So he starts taking and putting forces all, all over his kingdom. He's not going to be taken by surprise. And it's kind of interesting, you know, this, this whole period of time, these people seem to be constantly at war. And they have people stationed in battle cities all over the kingdom. And so he's got this happening, and he's very wise. I mean, he's, he's just starting his kingdom, and he knows that he's got to protect himself against enemies. And also, when you first take over a kingdom, that is when you are at your most vulnerable, especially as a king, because the enemies know that you're the new king. You don't have all your personnel in place. You don't have all of your, your alliances with the people all in place. You don't have your spies, your, you know, it, your ambassadors. Everybody's still trying to learn who you are. And so this is the same thing. Even in America, we go through the same thing every time we transition power between a president. There's a time of... of instability in a government while there's everybody's trying to figure out what's this new president like what what are they going to make what are they going to do they're putting their people in positions of power the other people are leaving power and the bureaucracy is trying to figure out what they can and can't do uh, because there's a new new person in charge so this is him setting up for protection and he immediately his first in instincts is to protect against the war that, that he's expecting. 
And then it says that uh, in verse 3, And the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the first ways, or the former ways, of his father David and sought not after the Baalims. So he sought God. Just as his father had done. Even though his father did not finish well, his father obviously laid a good foundation for Jehoshaphat. Now this is not always true. There's many of these kings that take over and their sons are not anything like, the, like their father at all. And, but in this case, we see Asa being a good king, laying a foundation, and Jehoshaphat comes in, and he is seeking God and not after idols. And this is a good start. And Jehoshaphat is one of the many kings of, Israel, of Judah that had a good start and didn't finish all that well. Now, he didn't fall flat on his face, but he did not finish as well as he started. And we're going to see why that happened as we go on. And he sought the Lord God of his fathers and walked in the commandments and not after the doings of Israel. So he is following after God. He's, he's get, uh, looking at the laws and following them to the best of his ability. He's not going after Israel. And when it says not after the ways of uh, the doings of Israel... Remember, Israel has always, the northern kingdom has problems. They started golden calf worship, Astoroth, Baal worship. None of the kings in, in the northern kingdom were ever a good king. They all were idol worshipers. From the very first one, Jehoram, all the way through to the last king, were all idol worshipers. So God is saying, Jehoshaphat, you're starting out right. And this is good. We... We hope that anybody who follows God is going to start out good. The, the biggest question is, do you finish well? And we're going to see so many of these kings don't finish well. They make little mistakes in their life that don't get repented of. And I've watched people over the years, some people that I've really respected and honored who just didn't finish well in their life. And my prayer for God is, God, I want to finish well. I don't want to drift off into side areas and, and fall apart. I want to finish well. And it is easy to not finish well. That doesn't mean you lose your salvation. It just means you're not being the witness that you're supposed to be toward the end. Asa, why did he not finish well? He got mad at a prophet that's telling him he was doing something wrong and threw the prophet into prison and then turned away from God. And so this is a, how easy things can happen to, 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 to move away. And we're going to see what uh, Jehoshaphat's problem is going to be in the middle of this chapter. He was good king until he got mad at the prophet. And so it says, Therefore the Lord established the kingdom in his hand, and Judah brought Jehoshaphat presents. And it says presents in the King James. It literally is tribute taxes. Uh, they brought their taxes <laughs> Uh, they tried to soften that a little bit in the King James. And he had riches and honor in abundance. And this is interesting because this is, these type of verses are where the prosperity gospel comes from. They, people follow God and all of a sudden they get rich <laughs> and get wealthy. So Jehoshaphat gets a lot of wealth and abundance because he is following God. Now the problem is this is not the promise of God to always give us wealth and abundance. <laughs> All right. We see that all through the scriptures. But it does, oftentimes, if you're honoring God, there will be good things that follow through in our life. 
but it's not a promise and it's not a guarantee. And this is what, when we read the book of Job, it's what Job is all about. Job believed the prosperity gospel. His friends believed the prosperity gospel. And when God took everything or allowed Satan to take everything away from him, he struggled with it because his whole, his whole doctrine was do good, get, get good, get a lot of money and, and wealth back. And all of a sudden he's without it. And here we see Jehoshaphat honoring God and getting wealth out of the deal. And, it's, and I love this in verse 6. And his heart was lifted up in the ways of the Lord. I like this idea. His heart was lifted up. His innermost being enjoyed God. And I love this when people are really, truly enjoying God and really working with him. All right, so Jehoshaphat's heart, his innermost being, is exalted to God. He's seeking after God. And I've found so many people, so many times with Christians, oftentimes they'll look and they'll go, you know, it's all religion to them. It's a bunch of rules into them instead of really taking and honoring God. And this is the great thing is when we're honoring God, then it really does change the way we look at everything. You know, if I'm looking at God and saying God is good, God is exalted, then on the flip side, I'm not looking at everything in a negative way. If I'm not looking at it from God's perspective, then everything that happens to me is either good luck, good luck or bad luck or good or bad, and there's nobody in control, and I just kind of get depressed. But when I'm looking at it and exalting God, I can be able to say, God, you've got a plan. And I love that because that's pretty much how I live my life. God, you've got a plan. Doesn't mean I'm always happy about his plan. His plan sometimes is challenging to be, to be excited, but I also, but I always fall back on, God, you have a plan. And this is where Jehoshaphat's at at this moment. He's looking at God. He's exalting in God. He's very happy with what's going on. And so he's being up there. And then he says, he took away the high places and the groves out of Judah. So he cuts down the Astoroth poles, burns them. He gets rid of the altars. And he's converting the people back to God. Now, Asa, his father, did the same thing when he came into power. That means those last few years of Asa were really bad because they've gone back to idol worshiping during those last few years of Asa. And Jehoshaphat's getting, having to get rid of all those idols again. And this is what we're going to see each one of these kings coming up and doing is getting rid of the idols from the previous kings so often. And Asa, uh, Je Jehoshaphat is saying, I want to honor God. He's starting out really good with God. Verse 7. Also in the third year of his reign, he sent to his princes, even to Ben-Ha-El and to Ob Ob Obadiah and to Zechariah and Nathaniel and Michael to teach in the cities of Judah. And with them he sent Levites, even Shimei and Nethaniah and Zebediah and Asiel and Shimeelmoth, and Johanathan, and Adonijah, and Tobijah, and Tobadonijah, Levites, and with them Elishima, and Jehoram the priest. And they taught Judah, and had the book of the law of the Lord with them, and went throughout all the cities of Judah, and taught the people. So here we see Jehoshaphat... So they 
traveling Bible Bible school or Bible study anyway. No, they're, they're probably traveling around around the whole town because there's only five five princes and a handful of Levites and a lot more cities. So these weren't synagogues they were setting up. But I think there would be traveling evangelists would be the better better statement uh, for this. So he says five princes, so five of his sons, a whole, this few Levites and two priests to go teach the people. Now, what was he trying to teach them at first? We don't know. Was he trying to just educate them and make them literate, or was he trying to educate them in the word of God, and, or was it both? And we don't know. It doesn't really tell us which one, but we do know he sends the Levites and the priests, and they take the book of the law with them, the five books of Moses. So at the very least, their whole purpose is to teach people God's word. So Jehoshaphat is doing something that is not mentioned with any other king. He is sending people out to teach them God's word. And, you know, whether these were circuit riding preachers or teachers, we don't know. He sent them out. There's not enough of them to set up individual schools and individual places. So I believe that they were some form of traveling, (laughs) traveling educators. And everywhere they went, they brought God's word and they taught his word. Uh, Jehoshaphat is trying to build a revival around God's words. He starts out really well. He's getting rid of the idols. He's getting rid of the Astoras, the Baalams. He's getting rid of all these different idols. He sends people out to teach God's word to them and show them, you know, give them the Ten Commandments, give them the way they're supposed to give offerings, go through the, go through the law, go through all of these things, and this is how you're supposed to live. This is what God has done for us by going through Genesis and how we got here, the book of Exodus. So they're going through all of these, all of these things. And he is definitely starting out on the right foot. And he's trying to get the people built up around him as well. And this is one thing he did that many of them did not do. He's building up with the people and saying, people, it is time to totally convert. Are you going to follow after God? And so he sends these people out throughout all the cities, and it says they taught the people. Now, I don't know what this would have been like to be able to go around village to village, town to town, and spend time just going through the word. How long did it take to go through the word? Now, one thing I do know is that they could read the entire first five books of the Bible in about four or five hours, because that's what happened in and when Ezra and Nehemiah built, it, built up Jerusalem, they gathered all the people together. They gathered at 6 o'clock in the morning. They read the law. Everybody stood as they read the law for, for six hours, and then they taught. So was this what these guys did? Quite possibly. Read through the whole of the, the, the law and then worked on explaining it. Now, the only problem is getting through the law is the easy part. Explaining it <laughs> would have taken a lot longer. Almost like how you're doing right now. Yes. Except I'm not sitting here and reading, yeah, reading the whole first five books of the Bible you're first. And you're not standing up, yeah. Now, we should all be standing up. In the Jewish tradition, you all should stand and I should sit. How, how exactly they did all of this, I don't know. But they went throughout, and the whole purpose was to get them to understand God's laws. Because usually what would end up happening was anytime it was recorded that people read God's laws, they would realize how sinful they were. And that is the whole purpose of the law, to show us that we're sinners. 
and that we can't meet God's demands in and of ourselves. And so the law would be read, they would give instruction, and then they would get people to agree to the fact that they needed to offer sacrifices and, and do all the things that they were supposed to do and to quit following idols because when they read the Ten Commandments, the first three are all about God. You'll have no other gods before me, you'll, you'll, and all these other, you know, do not take the Lord's name in vain. And so people would have been struck. Oh, we've been worshiping idols, we're guilty. And they would now hopefully come onto Jehoshaphat's side and follow what he's trying to, trying to build up. So we have all this going on, and he's sending these people out. And then it says, I love verse, verse 10, And the fear of the Lord fell upon the kingdom and the lands all around Judah, so that they were no more war made against Jehoshaphat. What happened when, when God's word was given to them? It brought the fear of the Lord. And you know, I looked through various things, and you know, that topic is, is something that is true all the way through the scriptures. In Psalm 19.9, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. God's word brings a purity to it. It cleans. It makes people aware of what's going on. Psalm 34, verse 11. Come, you children, hearken unto me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is he that desires life and loves many days that he may see good? So God's laws bring a desire to seek after God. And this is the thing that should happen. When we get into God's word, it should bring desire to seek God. Now, I have seen people whose desire when they're, when they're following God's word is to reject God. <laughs> and that is, you know, the human nature coming up against and saying, I don't like what I'm hearing. But we should be hearing this and saying, I want to follow God. Psalm 111, just going to read a few. There was a lot more of these fear the Lord, fear the Lord verses. Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do his commandments. His praise endures forever. I love that. The fear of the Lord brings wisdom. What are we seeing in our day and age? People are rejecting God. And we're seeing a lot of foolishness being, being promoted. A lot of sin being promoted. A lot of foolishness being, being created because we are not trusting God. We are not fearing his word. And there were other ones that I looked up, uh, Proverbs 1-7, Proverbs 8-13, Proverbs 10-27, you could go on and on. Uh, but all over the place, God is saying, the fear of the Lord brings wisdom, is the beginning of wisdom, is the beginning of knowledge. So, you know, we start with the fear of God and listen to what he has to say and follow, follow what he says and when Jehoshaphat brought God's word into the, into the people, it brought the fear of the Lord so that they would start to say, we need to honor God. And I really truly believe this is why I do so many Bible studies is because I believe that the teaching of God's word brings the, the fear of God and the relationship with God, the awe of God, the desire to follow God. And because that's what the scriptures say over and over again. And it says, and the result of it is that there was no war. 
Now, this is kind of funny to me. He's teaching his people, and their honoring God overflows so that nobody wants to attack their nation. Which means that God did some kind of great work in that revival. That the other nations aren't wanting to go against him and follow against him. And this is something that's really wonderful. And then we see more results in verse 11. And some of the Philistines brought Jehoshaphat presents and tribute, silver, and the Arabians brought flocks, 7,700 rams and 7,700 goats. And Jehoshaphat waxed ex great exceedingly, and he built up Judah's, Judah castles and cities of store. And he had much business in the city of Judah, cities of Judah, and the men of war, mighty men of valor, were in Jerusalem. And these were their numbers. Of, let's stop there. All right. So the Philistines and the Arabians, all of his neighbors, start bringing him tributes and presents and money. Uh, and I kind of find it interesting, you know, the Arabians were giving him a whole lot of, whole lot of rams and, and goats. 7,700 rams and goats. That's a lot of, lot of a flock. Uh, you know, that, that gives you a pretty instant flock and feed, feed people for a little while. And they were doing this over and over. And it says, Jehoshaphat waxed great exceedingly. He was getting more money, more power, more prestige, all because he honored God. And it's kind of interesting that God says, you know, that his children will stand before princes and kings. And, you know, this is kind of an interesting thing because I have talked to various missionaries over the years, and I know two of them personally, that they went in, they started working for God, lifting up God, and the next thing you know, they were going before the prime ministers or the presidents of, the, of their countries and being elevated. And I've heard that story over and over when you read the, the stories of the missionaries. But I, like I said, I've met two that have personally gone to the highest people in government of the lands that they were being missionaries in and being exalted and lifting up God in front of them. What did, what did Paul say he wanted to do? His greatest desire was to go preach to Caesar. Now, didn't work out very well. He lost his head when he preached to Caesar. But his great desire was, I want to go preach to Caesar. Again, it doesn't what we want or what we think we want isn't always what we're going to get from God. Uh, Paul got his desire. He got to preach to Caesar. Caesar did not respond the way he wanted him to. And I don't, think, I don't know if Paul really thought Caesar was going to repent and fall down on his, on his face or not, but he preached to Caesar and lost his head. All right? But Paul would have said, it's all what I wanted. I preached the message to him. It's now his, in his court. And this is what we have to understand. When we serve God, does, we may or may not see results. I was listening to the radio this morning, and uh, Johnny Erickson Tata was talking about one of the first times she spoke to a group. And she said she spoke to this group when she was just a young, young girl, 19 or 20, was when, when she first got saved, really saved. And she goes, and nobody responded to the message. Nobody even seemed to be paying attention. And then she said 50 years later, this person came up to her at a meeting and said, I got saved because of the, your talk in, in, this, uh, in this location. So we need to be very careful. We never know who is actually responding or listening to anything that we say. All right? 
My personal example of this is I was teaching a, a high school teen group one time, and in the back of the room was this one young man who was kicked back, and I, it looked like he was asleep. If you'd have asked me, I would have said he was completely asleep. I met with his father later that week, and he said, my son can't stop talking about what you, what you said that night. And I looked at him going, if I was to pick anybody who wasn't listening, it would have been your son that I would have picked not listening. So we need to be very careful that we do not assume that we're not getting through to somebody. We may be planting the seed. We may be watering. We might actually be getting through to them without knowing it. And only in heaven, in most cases, will we know what we've done. And so don't take what you see too, too, uh, too hard because we're not to walk by sight. We're to walk by faith in every aspect. Who is listening? We never know. Who is responding? We never know. You know who is watching our life when we don't think we're being watched? We don't know. What is our life telling people? Now that's another question that needs to be considered. Am I walking in such a way that Christ is lifted up? Or when people look at me and go, well, if that's what a Christian is, I want, don't want to have anything to do with them. And unfortunately, there's lots of Christians that live that way. That they live in a way that just doesn't look anything different than the world. But we need to live in a way that says, I am going to exalt God. Are we going to do it perfectly? I wish. <laughs> I wish that I could live perfectly. Maybe I don't. Jesus was crucified. He lived perfectly. Maybe I don't wish to be perfect. But I would like to be a great example to people. And people say, that, no, that's what a Christian is supposed to be. And I hope most of the time I do that. But what is our lifestyle? Are we, is our goal to lift God up? Is our heart lifted up to serve God? Or is it laid back and saying, well, whatever, whatever, doesn't really matter. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. It doesn't matter how I live. And we need to be careful of that attitude because it is not going to get us there. And it says, Jehoshaphat waxed exceedingly and he built in Judah castles, which are more, more correctly fort fortresses, fortresses and treasure houses or magazines, weapons, uh, storehouses of weapons. So all over Judah, he built fortresses and he built storehouses and, and treasure houses so that the army would have weapons wherever they went. And if you think about this, when they talk about strongholds or high towers, if in those days, in, in that day and age, you had your big fortresses, but not everybody could get to the fortress. You know, you weren't always close enough to get to the fortress, so you had strong towers that were built all over the place that had weapons of war in them, and food to, supply, food to supply a short siege, so that if you couldn't get, you know, the enemy was coming and you couldn't get to the fortress, you would run to the, high the, 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 the strong tower, lock those doors, and, and basically just try to hold out as long as you could until the army got there, and there would be some swords, spears, arrows, whatever you had in there, and enough food to last a few days, and you hoped that the king would come and rescue you before, before you ran out of food. And these towers were all over the place. And you, even today, if you go to Europe and, and these places, you'll see these towers in the middle of some field. And they're mostly run down nowadays, but you'll be a tower here, a tower there. They're all over the place. And even in the Middle East, you'll find these towers if they're not been destroyed. And those were those places where people could run to. And what are we told? The 
Though God is a high, our, our strong tower, the righteous run into it and they are safe. God says we are to run into the high tower. And who is the high tower and strong tower? He is. He is that strong tower. And all he says is run in and hide inside the tower. What is our victory against Satan? Being clothed in Jesus Christ, running into God and saying, God, it's all yours. You defend. You know, and people go, well, that's being a chicken. Oh, you're right. I'll, I'll be a chicken all I want against the enemy. I'll let God be the one that defends me. He's got more power than I do. I'll just hide. And that's what we're told. Put on Christ. Be, in, be clothed in Christ. Put on the armor of Christ, which is Christ. You know, and just hide. And let God be your strength. One thing God knows about us, he knows that we're weak. Now, we deceive ourselves. We think we're strong in many times. God knows that we're not strong. And he says, just come and hide. <laughs> hide in me. I am your strength. Then Psalm 23 is that perfect example. God says he leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. He sets a table before our enemy, for us, before in the presence of our enemies. He says, "Here, I'm going to guard you. You just, you just enjoy yourself. You're in the middle of a battle. You just enjoy yourself, and I'll take care of you. Here's your food." The, we need to learn to just have that kind of faith rest in God, where we just say, "God, I trust you. I just want to rest in you." But most of that is getting to know how much God truly loves us. Now, we know that God loves us so much that he sent Jesus to die for us. But sometimes we forget that God is also loving us so much that he says, just stay here next to my side and I'll take care of you. Jesus said, my, take on my yoke. It is easy and light. He doesn't want to put a burden on us. He's just saying, walk here beside me. I'll, I'll carry the weight. And this is so important for us because the yoke of the, of the animals in, in that day and even till most recent years, the strong animal carried the heavy burden of the yoke and the other one just kind of walked along beside it with a little bit of, little bit of pressure as it helped drag the plow and, and the wagon. The strong one led. The other one just walked along beside it. And that is what God's saying. He goes, I just want you to walk along beside me. Trust me. Trust me in all that you do. Which is why I love Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your path. Trust in God. He's walking there beside us. He wants to control us. He wants to direct us. The only reason we don't get directed most of the time is because we start trusting in our own understanding. At least I do. I go the wrong way and wonder... How did I find myself in this big a mess? Why is everything such a big mess? And you know, I can almost hear God say, because you kept making the wrong turns. <laughs> you know, if you'd have just followed me and walked, into, walked in and, and did what I said, you wouldn't be where you're at now. You'd be beside me walking through the shadow of the valley of death, which you're over there in the middle of nowhere trying to walk through it on your own. And I'd be setting this table for you in front of, in your presence of your enemy and making you victorious. Understand your own understanding? Huh? Understand your own. Lean not unto your own understanding. Because we tend to try to want to 
do things our way. And this is, I've talked about this a lot. God wants us to be surrendered. Surrendered to him, to his will. And the human soul and spirit does not want to surrender. You know, our, our pride stands up and says, I want to do things my way. You know, uh, because I am smarter than anybody else. I'm stronger than somebody else. I know better than God, which we would never say. But isn't that what we're saying when we don't follow his way? God says, well, this is what I want you to do. Oh, God, I don't think that's a really good idea. If you just knew my circumstances, God, you would know why your way doesn't work for me. What was Satan's downfall? Pride. I will be like the Most High. I will sit on the sides of the north next to God. His pride says, I will not humble myself to God's plan. Most people believe that the plan that he rebelled against was that man was going to be put above the angels, created in God's image and would be placed above the angels. And he's going, nope, not me, no way, and rebelled. What do we do when God gives us a plan? Oh, no way, I'm not going to submit myself. He says the leader should be the servant of all. And many people go, nope, not going to do that. The world says, if you want to be the leader, you... you beat up everybody else, you get better than them, you're smarter than them, and you put yourself above them. That's not God's way of doing, being a leader. That's not God's way. And we look at what God says to do, and if we just live by his ways, we'll be better off. But so many times we rebel against God's ways. We, we look and God says, the way to be saved is to, to accept Jesus, admit you're a sinner and accept Jesus Christ. And we're going, nope. I'm going to see how good I can be. I'm going to earn my salvation. And I can't tell you how many people I've witnessed to who will tell me, well, what you're telling me is just too easy. Yeah, and I've actually looked, especially some of the guys who go, yeah, it's so easy, you, you're afraid to do it. Because <laughs> basically that's what it amounts to. We fear to submit ourselves to God because that takes me out of the picture. It takes my desires, my pride out of the picture and makes me dependent on God. And many people don't want to be dependent on God. Jehoshaphat at this point in time is being dependent on God. And he's saying, well, we're going to teach people God's word. We're going to get rid of all these idols. We're not, we're not going to have anything but God to worship. And he's starting on the right path. And he's lifting up God and people are doing And now he's doing everything he can also to protect his kingdom. He's not just sitting back and saying, okay, I'm, I'm so dependent on God, I'm just going to sit here in my castle and let God defend me. Now, God wants us to do work. But we need to be careful that we're doing the work that God wants and not the work that we want to do. And it is hard sometimes to make that distinction. It is very hard sometimes to make that distinction of where is God and where is my own, my own thinking. And one of the things I've shared with people and going, if it's something that I want to do myself, I take it very, very careful because I'm going, okay, God, is this what I want to do or is this something you want me to do? When, when, I'm, wanting, when I'm thinking that I have to do something and it's something I don't want to do, I'm going, okay, God, give me the desire to want what you want <laughs> because I sure don't want to do this. And it happens all the time. Talk to this person, do this, go, go here, you know, move here, take this job, do whatever. 
And I'm going, nope, not what I want to do. And at that point, I have to go, okay, God, are you trying to get into my heart and teach me something? You know, you know got to be careful with that because Satan can get you down the wrong path by doing the same thing. This is why it's hard to decide sometimes what God is asking you to do. This is why we have to know God well enough to know his voice. And it gets hard. It gets hard to know his voice. Thank you. And to follow him. Because oftentimes we don't want to do what he wants us to do. Most of the time we don't want to do what he wants to do. Because our flesh is saying, I want to do what I want to do. I don't want to do what God wants to do. I don't want to go out witnessing to people. I don't want to go out sharing Christ with others. I don't want to go to church and read my Bible and pray. But is our heart lifted up toward God? Or is it lifted up to what I want? And this is where it becomes very difficult at times. You know, and as we come into this end of, end of the years and toward the tribulation period of time and things start getting difficult for us, it's going to be very easy to say, uh, well, I don't think I want to go to church or read my Bible or make people know that I'm a Christian because people are going to make fun of Christians. People are going to maybe not even make, just make fun with them. I truly believe in America there's a time coming very soon where we might actually end up in jail or pay with our lives for being a Christian. Then it's going to be really hard to say, I am going to follow God no matter what. And that is going to be a hard time. When, when our life is on the line and we're ready to serve God, that really tells us that he is lifted up in our heart. Because I still remember various people in stories over the time where people have given their life for God. Now, if you've read the book Hearts of Fire, which is a story, several stories of people that have followed God and, and died for their, for their belief. It's put out by... Uh, um, Voice of the Martyrs. And these are current. These are current people. These aren't people from long ago. These are people in the last 20 or 30 years that have died for their faith. I remember seeing the, the videos where the Coptic Christians were being executed on the beach by the Muslims. And they were singing praises to God during that whole time. People are paying with their life, even today, all around the world. And I truly believe that in America, we're going to start getting this place. Are we going to be one of those that is willing to give all for Jesus? And what does it mean by giving all? Other people notice. People do notice. These martyrs, we're still remembering them 20, 30, 40, 50 years later, a couple of them thousands of years later. If you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, there's people that were you know, martyred in the first and second century of, of Christianity, and we're still remembering and reading about them. People notice that we have something that's worth dying for and dying cheerfully. Now, you go, well, how can you die cheerfully? Well, it's pretty easy when you know where you're going. Now, now I don't know. I, I'm not sure how I'm going to respond, but I do understand that when I die, I'm going to be in the presence of God. That should give us a lot of confidence when they're going, you know, repent, you know, recant or die. Well, send me to God. I'm ready. I'm ready to go to God. But we have to make that decision before we face that kind of tribulation. It's like everything else. If I haven't made my decision before that, when, the, when I'm faced with that decision, I'm not going to make the right decision. 
And this is something that's very important. We make our decision of how we want to live before the event happens. I, I want to serve God. I want to finish well. So I really do believe that when, if, if and when I have to face that kind of a decision, I'm going to say, God, I'm ready. Let me sing praises to you as they're executing me. Because this is going to be so critical. Are we ready? Is our heart lifted up toward God? Jehoshaphat's heart was lifted up toward God, and his result was he, saw, he sent teachers out to teach people about God. Now, so these, these uh, missionaries, pastors, teachers, whatever you want to call them, were paid by the king to go out and teach. And so in verse 14 it says, And these are the numbers of them according to the house of their fathers of Judah, the captains of thousands, Adna the chief, and with him mighty men of valor, 300,000. And next to him was Jehoiannan the captain, and with him 280,000. And next to him was Amaziah the son of Zichri, who willingly offered himself unto the Lord, and with him 200,000 mighty men of valor. And of Benjamin, Eliada, the might, a mighty man of valor, and with him armed men with bow and shield, 200,000. And next to him was Jehoiadabad, and with him 180,000 ready for war. These waited on the king besides those that the king put in the fenced cities throughout Judah. So these men were his special army. These were the men that he commanded, and it was only a one... 1,160,000 man, man army that he had at his call. And note that these weren't even the soldiers that he had in all the, the fortified cities. Now, how large an army did you have to have in each fortified city? I don't know. Uh, I would expect that there were several thousand men in each of those cities, enough to be able to hold that city for a period of time. So it was, I would expect probably three to 5,000 men in each one of those fortified cities to hold out while they waited for the million-man army to come and help them out. So he is a man who is prepared. He is ready to defend his nation. He is prepared. What do we need to do as Christians? We're to study to show ourselves approved, workmen that need not to be ashamed. We are to be ready to stand for God. We are to do everything we can from our side to be ready and then be ready to answer the call of God. And maybe we won't have to do anything. One of the things about the military is the military is always ready to defend our country. Their hope is that they never have to be deployed into dangerous situations. In recent years, that's not been true. The last uh, 10 to 20 years, that has not been true. They've been called and sent into trouble. There have been generations that they've spent their entire time on the in the military for 20, 30 years and never gone to a conflict. My dad was one of those. He just got in just the right time to miss all the activity and never had to go into a battlefront. You know, and you know what? From his perspective, he'd been trained to do it. He actually said one time that he wished he had gone into some battles because that's what he was trained to. He never got to use his training. Our job as Christians is to be trained and be ready for the battles, be ready for the trials. And we will never go through a life without any battles or trials. We may not have some severe trials, but we're going to have battles. We're going to have temptations. We're going to have testings. 
Now, we may not be called upon to actually go and become a martyr, especially in America. The time's coming when I think we're going to, but are we prepared? Have we studied? Do we know the word of God? Do we have verses in our heart that says, here is my support system, and I'm lifting my heart to God and saying, I am ready for God. I am ready to stand with him wherever he leads me. And you know the good news about all this is, whatever it takes, God will give us the grace to do. I don't know for sure that I'm going to stand up in that place, but I believe that if I need to, God will give me the grace to be able to stand up for it. I think I've got enough self-will to do, and if I'm trying to stand on my own self-will, I'm going to fall flat on my face. But by God's grace, if and when this happens, he is going to say, okay, here you go. I'm giving you the strength to get this through. David stood before Goliath. Not only did he stand before Goliath, when Goliath started toward him, David ran toward Goliath. What an amazing thing. He had no armor, no sword, no shield. He had a little, little sling. Goliath starts running to him. He runs toward Goliath. I can almost picture Goliath like, what is this crazy guy doing? This little crazy boy is charging at me with nothing but a stick, a staff, and he's running toward me. You know, would have thought he was crazy. How many times does God put us in a place that looks just that crazy? We look at that enemy and go, and that's a giant. That's a big giant. I don't have anything to fight this giant with. And God says, go fight that giant. Our choice at that point is to stand our ground and hope that we can beat the giant or be a David and run toward that giant and saying, all right, God, you said to fight this giant. I'm going in. And then he threw that rock and struck Goliath in the, between the eyes and, he, and Goliath fell. And David just kept running and went over and cut Goliath's head off and said, God's given me victory. God is the one that will give us victory in those times when nothing looks like it's going to be good. And why does God allow that to happen? He wants the glory. If he put me in a battle where it looks like I could win, and I win, who's going to get the glory? You know, I, I was bigger than the opponent, and I beat that opponent up. I get the glory. I'm David going against that giant, and there's no way I could possibly win. Who gets the glory for that battle? God gets the glory for the battle. And when God puts us into situations, he keeps putting us in situations where there is nothing I can do to win. Because that is the God-sized problem. He's going to say, I'm going to give you a problem that only I can get you out of. Over and over again, and we look at it, and when we're trusting in, in God, if God is on our side, there is no opponent that can defeat us. If I'm trusting in me, there's lots of opponents that can defeat me. And a matter of fact, even the little opponents might be able to defeat me if they get a lucky blow win, just like David did against Goliath. But God is the one that gave David the victory. God is the one that gave David victory over and over and over again in battles. God is the one that gave Abraham the battle with his little small army of servants against the five kings 
that had defeated Sodom and Gomorrah and that entire valley and their three kings. And God gave Abraham victory. Over and over again in the scriptures we see this. Samson coming in and being given the power of God and beating thousands of people. Gideon and his small little army defeating you know, 300, defeating 80,000 people. God defending his own people and killing 187,000 soldiers in one night with one angel. If God's on your side, there is nothing that can stand against you. And we need to just learn to be able to say, God, I trust you. Now, Jehoshaphat is doing all, his, all he can. He's got a million-man army at his, at his disposal. He's building up his cities to defend. But his trust really is in God, saying, I trust God. I'm going to stay on God's side. I've got my million-man army, but I want to trust God. And this is our job. We prepare. We get into the Word. We know the Word. We study. We get prepared. But ultimately... We step back and say, it is all God who's going to get me through this. It's going to be God who helps me win the battle and be victorious. And without him, if I'm doing it in my own strength, it's really not a true victory. Because my flesh cannot stand before God. We're going to end here. Lord, thank you for this evening. Lord, help us to lift you up in all that we do. Help us to learn to trust you in all that we do. Guide and keep us in, as we go forward and, and show us what you want us to do in the rest of this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening, friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to, get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.